0: hey everybody welcome to season two of the Mixmasters masters podcast i'm your host steve litcher and for those not familiar i'm the touring front of house engineer for stitched up heart working with stitched up heart has led me to meet an incredible number of really talented people and i wanted to introduce you to them i wanted to let you hear their stories and learn from their experiences this is really your chance to listen in on behind the scenes talk and to learn from some of the best in the business i have to give a huge shout out to my pal merritt goodwin for this killer intro music, Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's also an extremely talented composer. Give him a follow on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin or on Instagram at Merritt Goodwin Official. Now let's bring up the faders and jump into this episode of Mixmasters Podcast. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Mixmasters Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Litcher, and in this episode I'm joined by Nate Northway. Nate's living in the St. Louis area these days, and he's worked with bands that include Born of Osiris, Amir, A Day to Remember, Rise Against, and countless others. This episode's pretty awesome because we talk about some of the fun that he's had in his earlier days, especially uh when troubleshooting wiring at wonky venues. Then we jump into talking about how he processes his vocal and guitar chains and some of the adjustments he's had to make while moving to larger and larger venues. We also touch on PA preferences, mic use, and we talk about Studio One and how Nate's using that during the pandemic to mix inside of the box. So without further ado, let's jump in and get to know Nate Northway. Hey everybody, welcome back to Mixmasters Podcast. I am joined today by Nate Northway, and Nate is a legend in the live sound business. Uh I'm looking at his resume of bands that he's worked with and it reads like a who's who of heavy metal, rock and roll, hard rock. Uh, I'm really excited to get to talk to Nate. All of these bands that he has worked with are right in my wheelhouse. So Nate, it is great to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having
0: me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't want to waste any time. I would, I'd like to jump right in and, and learn a little something about you. I know all of the bands that you've worked with, but I really don't know how you got interested in music. At a younger age, did you pick up an instrument and sort of fall in love with it? Or can you take us back to your really early days and your first memories of being involved with music and how it led into the career that you have today?
1: Uh, yeah. So I, um, when I was probably 11, 12 years old, I discovered Metallica. It was the Black Album. That changed everything for me. <laughs> Um, and uh, I actually picked up a set of drumsticks after that. My folks were nice enough to uh, deal with me playing drums in the house, believe it or not. And uh, that lasted about a year. And then I picked up a guitar. I just randomly picked it up and hit two strings together. I was like, oh, that sounds like something. Sat down and tried to figure it out, you know. <clears throat> and um, yeah, I started playing guitar and that's really where my musical career started. I fell in love with the guitar, played in, um, you know, I can't even remember how many bands throughout the years from the time I was about 12 until uh, 28, 29, I think is when I took my first tour. Um, That was kind of like the end of my band era. But, uh, you know, through all that time, I started recording my own band, which eventually led to me recording other bands and the local scene. And um after getting some of those CDs out, some of the people who were working at the local clubs as sound engineers started telling me, hey, you ought to come down and you know, try your hand at the live stuff. You know, your CDs sound good and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. So I kind of fell into the live sound thing. I didn't actually think I would like it. I liked the studio environment, controlled, you know, able to edit and no one ever hears my mistakes and that type of thing. Um, but, uh, pretty much as soon as I started doing the live stuff, I just, I fell in love with it. You know, I love the, I love the, the being on your toes and figuring things out in a pinch quickly. And also the even better part about the live sound stuff is that you leave your mistakes behind. You know what I mean? At, at the end of the night, they're over, they're done with, you never have to listen to them again. Whereas, you know, in recorded music, it's like. I still, I'll hear something that, you know, I mixed years ago or something, and it's still, I cringe at that guitar tone or the, you know, the snare doesn't punch enough. Oh, why did I do that, you know? Um, but yeah, so I, I, I kind of fell into the live sound thing. And um, I don't know if you know uh, who Josh Travis is. He's a guitar player, plays, currently plays with Ymir. Um, He has played with, uh, the Tony Danza tap dance extravaganza and uh, a slew of other bands but I used to play in a lot of bands with him and um, he hit me up in 2008 about uh, born of Osiris looking for a front house engineer for their first headliner ever and I was like sure I'll go on tour that sounds like fun um, so I got in touch with their manager, Sean Keith, who's another St. Louis guy, actually. And um, yeah, he got me hooked up with them. And then, you know, that is really kind of, you know, I, I found my calling. I felt like when I started touring, I loved the, the fast pace of it all. And um, yeah, that led from those guys into a slew of other Sumerian records bands and eventually led me to Amir, who I mixed for a very long time um man 9 years 8 9 years or something like that um and then you know just through meeting people i know you just had charlie bybee on the show a good friend of mine he got he got me involved with uh a data remember he got me involved with rise against you know who are the two uh the two artists who i'm currently working with uh hopefully if we ever get to go back on tour <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's kind of the the gist of how it all happened for me. You know, the condensed version.
0: Yeah, no, it's perfect. Uh, So when you were starting out with Osiris, were you carrying a console or were you mixing on house consoles?
1: No, definitely no consoles. Um, I didn't carry a console until. okay, my first console that I ever carried was on a festival tour in 2011. Um, which was four years or so after I started touring. So for the first, yeah, Born of Osiris, that tour was whatever they had in the house. And in fact, it was like, I had my little mic package that I took with me. You know, I had, I don't know, I had a 91 and some 604s and a handful of 57s and stuff that I took out in my little box. And, you know, um, that was like my, you know, at least I can control this portion of the show, whatever, you know, I might have a, a personas or I might have a Midas, you know, I have no idea, but at least I've got my microphones. Um, But, you know, I do feel like probably I'm sure you have have had similar experience where when you start doing that and mixing on different gear every single day, you really kind of hone your chops. You figure out what frequencies sound like not what frequencies sound like on this desk. You figure out what compression sounds like, not what this compressor sounds like, you know?
0: You also uh, learn how to fix a lot of uh, unexpected issues quickly. Oh my gosh, man. Okay, so I got
1: a quick story for you about that. (laughs) Um, My first time going to uh, the Southern Hemisphere, uh, I went to, uh, it was Australia, Hong Kong, Bangkok, and uh, Singapore. And, um, you know, I'm like mind blown, like, wow, my job took me to these places. I'm so excited about this, you know, mixing shows and they were small shows. It was with uh, Amir and uh, they had not traveled over there very much at the time. So it was like it was all pretty small shows, but it was still cool, you know. And um, the last gig of the tour, I, I honestly, I can't remember which city it was in, but it was it was either uh, Singapore or Hong Kong. I can't remember which one, but uh, we ended up getting to this venue. And as you do, I hooked up my iPod and I turned on the system and I put on whatever I was tuning the PA with at the time, probably sledgehammer, you know, basic, I know uh <laughs> but uh i turned it on you know things are just weird out of phase like at the time i was a young engineer you know i i i didn't understand that that's that was phase issues and there was all this stuff going on i just knew that something was wrong so um we're about an hour and a half before doors and i'm supposed to put a sound check into this you know do the whole nine yards and um So I start panicking, like, uh, this isn't going to work, you know, there's no low end, but it's coming out of each speaker, but they're not summing correctly and you know, okay, screw it, I'm just going to dig into this thing. And so I started like, this is a, a, a terrible, dirty, filthy, nasty club, you can imagine what the amp room looks like, okay. So I'm like tracing wires through the walls. And like, I got like my guitar player, Jesse, on the other end. I'm like, is that the right one? He's like, yeah, that's the right one, you know. So we're tracing wires and figuring out, you know, things are hooked up backwards. Horns are hooked up to subsends and da-da-da-da, you know. So half the PA is blown. Um, But uh, we finally get managed to get what speakers are working all hooked up in kind of a left-right array you know and uh and pulled the show off and it sounded okay you know better than better than it should have honestly that that fixing things in a pinch you know uh i I was taught by a guy here in st louis who um really pushed us into like oh something's wrong we'll go figure out what it is you know and uh so that kind of stuff came in handy but yeah fixing stuff in a pinch man Working with bad gear, all that kind of stuff, you really get used to it when you're working on gear de jour you know
0: oh it's I've told this story before, but that's why I started a production company here in Madison was I just got tired of going to all these clubs and and events around the area, and the same problem at the same club ten times in a row, and you're like it would take such minimal effort to fix this, but the easier solution for me was just to buy my own console there you go. and start carrying it, and then all of a sudden. I'm going to buy some speakers and some microphones. And, you know, $200,000 later, you've got a production company. So,
1: what's your your console? What do you carry?
0: uh, D Live these days. Oh, do
1: you know Ben Hammond? No, I don't. English bloke. Uh, He mixes, uh, well, he mixes a bunch of bands, but the last tour I did with him, he was mixing um, AFI. And he carries D-Live. He, in fact, played some role in uh, testing or design or something. I'm not sure. I'm probably not giving him the credit he deserves. Amazing engineer. Um, But, yeah, he swears by that thing. man. I had my gigantic S6L with, you know, all this outboard gear. And he'd roll up with his little D-Live and be like, idiot, (laughs) you know.
0: I've, uh, I, I just got the D live. I've, this is the second D live I've owned. I owned one with my production company when it was more active in the area. And then I started touring with stitched up heart and I took an M 32 compact out with me Midas. And I always thought that was a good sounding board until I got on really big PAs and the, the content that stitched up heart has, uh, I needed more horsepower, more processing, you know, like multiband compression and whatnot. And so I did that one tour and I wanted to put a gun in my mouth most nights after the show. <laughs> and so I bit the bullet uh, literally and figur- figuratively and bought the uh, D-Live again. So yeah. we have to tour again because I want to get this thing out on some big PAs and have some oh, fun. Oh, you so, haven't had a chance to take it out much. Not yet. No, just a yeah. little stuff around here.
1: Yeah. Uh, that's so funny, man. I um, Right before all this hit, I bought a, a whole UAD rig like uh I wanted to use the whole um universal audio plugins live and I bought the whole rig I'm like this is awesome can't wait to take this out cuz you know I had rented it a couple of times just to see if it was something that um I was going to use long term and uh yeah bought the all the best you know the biggest most horsepower that I could get in it <laughs> and then all my tours went away you know like within a month after i bought this thing so i i like call my Sweetwater water rep i'm like hey bud um can i uh can i send this back and buy this next year <laughs> you know because uh it, there's no use it's sitting around my apartment you know what i mean
0: <laughs> yeah i i was very similar i bought the d live in uh i ordered it in december while we were still on tour because i got just so sick of the m32 and being frustrated. That i called my rep uh at full compass they're in my backyard so i've got a good relationship with them ordered it in december and it arrived like end of january or something like that and so i played around with it in february and then all of a sudden march came and i'm, I'm resting my arms on it right now as i talk to you oh, So yeah it just breaks your heart doesn't it at least i can multi-track on it you know so i can still play around and and do some fun stuff that way but yeah, I feel like as soon as I get it in front of a big PA, I'm I'm probably going to need a change of uh, underpants.
1: Yeah, well, Ben loves his man, and his show sounded phenomenal. So I'm sure you'll have fun with it once you get it out there on a big rig.
0: Yeah, let's hope. Um, so going back to you and I hate talking about myself on the podcast, but that was a that was a fun little segment. So thanks. Uh, so you're you're uh, working with Osiris, and you're working with Amir. And then you start working with like uh, Parkway Drive and Good Charlotte and Cedar and so on. What were some of the biggest adjustments or challenges that you had going to the bigger and bigger productions? You know, like I imagine when you were first with Osiris, you know, it was not like a an arena tour or maybe it was. Uh, but, yeah. you know, as you transition to larger and larger shows, what were some of the biggest adjustments that you had to make, either from your mix approach or from like your workflow like what what really do you think you had to adjust the most for um that's a tough
1: one because there's a lot you know it's like you it takes it took me anyway you know i don't know there's probably some brilliant engineers who are quicker to pick it up than me but it took me a long time to get to a point to where i felt like okay i'm comfortable going into any environment whether it's a, a an arena or outdoor festival or whatever it is you know the the difficult spots to mix it's it took me a long time to get there and um adjustments like specifically it's hard to say you know there's things that i'm sure you've heard a million times before about you know making changes to your effects that you're used to using time-based effects you know reverbs delays and stuff like that you need to not necessarily get rid of them but you know definitely adjust the way that you use them you're not going to have you know those three and four second delays that you might use in a small club for that snare throw you don't really need that in you know a big hall or arena or something like that but you know there's there's those those types of things but um probably the biggest adjustment that i've had to make and i still struggle with it from time to time is uh volume you know when when i'm mixing aggressive music on a big pa in a small club that's that was my favorite thing to do that was you know when i got a a pa that just blows you out the back door you know that's the sound that i loved and uh moving that into settings where the room is so loose if you've got six seconds of natural the uh natural reverb in the room or something you can't do that you you end up fighting yourself you know it's you're naturally as mixers if we can't hear something we want to turn it up you know what i mean it's like that's just human nature always sounds better louder always so it's like you know when you're using plugins or something you turn it on and it's got that half a db boost just so it sounds better automatically you know what i mean it's the same type thing. You want to turn it up. It sounds better if you can't hear it. Well, you end up fighting yourself in a lot of these environments because, you know, the louder you get, the more uh, reflections you have and you end up fighting with not only uh, the volume coming out of the PA, you know, having to get everything louder than everything else, but also bouncing around the room and stuff. So it's like, it took me a while to, to the point to where i felt like okay i need to bring the volume down and it's going to be okay you know i don't have to have the biggest kick drum in the world i don't have to have you know i don't have to scare people when they hear that first downbeat you know what i mean and uh, for aggressive music that's kind of counterintuitive in my experience so that that took me a little while to get used to and like i say i still struggle with it from time to time obviously if i'm on a two-month tour man by the end of that tour I'm mixing about two dB louder than I was at the beginning of the tour, (laughs) if you know what I mean. Uh, so that, that's a big adjustment, but also, you know, there's, there's the other things that come along with working with not just bigger, uh, environments, but also bands with higher budgets, you know, you get to carry a lot more equipment and that's been such a a blessing for me, man. I'm a constant tweaker. I, I want to, I'm a perfectionist. I want to find the perfect formula. You know what I mean? The The perfect uh, mixture of outboard gear and plugins and all this kind of stuff. So it's great to have bands who just, you know, not necessarily write you a blank check, but, you know, they're not trying to beat you down on audio gear because video is expensive. Lighting is expensive. Audio is probably the cheapest out of the three. You know what I mean? So a lot of times it's like, well, if we take a little bit out of audio, we can afford that extra lighting or whatever. And it's just been really great to work with artists who care so much about their sound. You know, that's um, I know I'm trailing off a little bit here, but that's uh, that's been a big, a big blessing for me moving up in into those, you know, uh, bigger bands, bigger budgets.
0: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that dive into some of the things that you're using with like rise against, for example, are you carrying any sort of outboard gear like uh speaker processing or, uh, any, I know you mentioned the, uh, the UAD, uh, DSP that you were looking at, uh, for this next upcoming tour, but with the previous tour, what type of, uh, outboard gear processing were you running and anything fun?
1: Oh, so much fun. Um, yeah, so my basic setup for any act that I'm going to go into, uh, or at least my preferred setup, I should say, is uh, SXL. I love that desk. Um, and I'll usually carry redundant wave servers with it. Um, sometimes, depending on the band, I've been peppering in the UAD stuff, but I've really grown to 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 like that stuff, so that's become more of a fixture. Um, but as far as outboard goes, yes, on the speaker processing, I usually carry two, like, LM44s. Um, usually only end up using one as a front of house mixer, you know, at the way that I mix anyway. Um, I don't need the second one, but it comes in handy when you end up going into places with, like, balcony fills or, you know, delays that they need to feed from you. Or, you know, you can even feed... Um, record with that stuff if you absolutely have to so it's just good to have that extra one there um but you know the the that's kind of the nuts and bolts of it uh the fun outboard gear um i i really only take master bus processing for outboard um uh, i do most of my channel processing in the box or you know with uh the waves or uad stuff but it's all plugins digital um but My master bus is, uh, I use a a GML 8,200 EQ parametric EQ, which is probably overkill for live sound, but man, I love the way that thing sounds. And I know exactly what it sounds like when I reach for it. You know, um, the other thing that I absolutely have to have in the rack these days is the Rupert Neve uh, MVP. Oh my gosh, man. That thing is a beast it's just you know you can get your mixes so wide and so thick you know with the parallel compression that they've got in there it's it's just it's an outstanding piece of gear and it can be as subtle or as drastic as you like i just love the thing um but aside from that um with a data remember those guys actually own a vocal chain uh that you know we we worked together to build but the band owns it which is it's just a launch box a 500 lunchbox um has the chandler pre excuse me um the chandler pre the serpent i forget what the model number is but it's basically it's the serpent version of um an 1176 <clears throat> um a dbx 160 a dbx DSer and oh, on a spare Chandler in there as well uh but man that's a beautiful vocal chain um you know it's kind of the the go-to for what I usually do plug-in wise is I'm pretty much always running into a DBX 160 or some type of fast VCA and then an even faster you know 1176 just smashing it to get that kind of grit you know um And that outboard gear, man, it sounds fantastic. I just can't say enough about that Serpent 1176. I should really
0: know the model number for as much as I love it. (laughs) Or maybe get an endorsement deal from them or something. Oh, geez. Yeah. Well,
1: you know, as you probably know, front of house guys don't really get endorsement deals like, like that, you know.
0: Modeling gigs and uh, endorsement deals. I'll, I'll never get either.
1: (laughs) Yeah, man, for outboard gear that that's really about it. I. I like to have a lot of drawers out of front of the house. So I end up with a lot of big gear, um, you know, cause I carry smart and, you know, all this other stuff that requires laptops and microphones. Plus I like to hide snacks out there.
0: <laughs> that's, that's uh, sorry, you got me right at the right moment there. So uh, well done. Uh, yeah, that's important as well. Cause the day does get long and you don't know when you're gonna, you know, get your next meal. So I totally, uh, totally uh, identify with that. Indeed. What about uh, in the wave side of things, uh, take like a, a vocal chain, for example, or a guitar uh, channel, are you doing, what are you using waves primarily for uh, in those instances? Are you F6, C6, uh, primary source expander, blah, 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 blah. Um,
1: Pretty much every vocal that I, that I touch has a PSE on it, as probably every other engineer that you've ever talked to in the past, you know, two or three years that are all using that because it's just, Dead simple and it works perfectly. You know, it that is probably my desert island plugin. Um, the PSE, I just can't say enough how much I love that thing. Um, but yeah, usually that's the first thing in the chain. Um sometimes, depending on the act, uh, I'll run into like waves tune or something if I need to, you know, adjust some backing vocals or whatever it is, you know, that that's occasional. You know that adds a whole other layer of programming because then you have to set up snapshots for the song keys and all that kind of stuff, and make sure that your gear is all talking properly. Uh, but it's kind of fun. I like nerding out on that kind of stuff too. Um, but then the 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 real sound of the vocal chain for me really comes in with um, I usually hit a DBX 160, uh, and I'm looking for uh, just knocking down the the hard transients and when they get real hot on it, you know, I'm looking for anywhere between two and six dB of gain reduction, uh, and then I'll usually push that into an API 550. Uh, oh, that's the other piece in that uh, vocal chain that I mentioned earlier. I forgot about that. That's a very important piece. Uh, the API 550 EQ, which I absolutely love. Um, the 12.5k high shelf on that thing just adds this breathy high end oh my gosh it's so good and the uh the 1.5k on the mid man i I will bump that up until i start getting that megaphone sound and then just bring it back you know it's just such a beautiful eq for the vocal that 1.5k for most vocalists some guys or, or or girls you have to kind of dial it back but um after that it hits an 1176 and i usually use we use the blue face model on the cla76 um and i do fastest attack fastest release and try and slam that thing so it's consistently hitting negative 10 db you know at least um sometimes i look for it to get down closer to that negative 20. uh The harder I hit that thing, the better it sounds, especially on a vocalist like Tim from Rise Against. He's got a little bit of grit in his voice to begin with, and then that just kind of adds this, that harmonic distortion to it that, you know, it just plays together really well when he starts getting that natural harmonic overtone, man. That thing just gets so excited by that, you know. Uh, But then after that, I'll, I'll hit... Uh, an F6 if I have a problem frequency you know if there's a vocalist who you know after all the compression that they're running through because I compress the ever living hell out of my vocals <laughs> after they hit all that compression if I ha- still have issues you know then I'll use that F6 to kind of surgically dynamically dial out those frequencies past that um i'll use the waves x feedback um every day man that's one of the first things that i do when i get the pa open is i'll take my little vocal mic out to front of house and just try and excite it till it starts feeding back and let that thing do its thing and you know and just let it you know turn it on and let it go and it's done um, but that's a typical vocal chain for me. Obviously, you know, different artists, you have to pepper in different things. That's a typical one. Guitars, I I try not to do a lot of processing on guitars. I I like to cut the EQ, you know, as much as possible, just get the nasty stuff out of there, you know, and then um from time to time. I'll I'll boost some high end just to get the sizzle back and run that into either uh like an Oxford inflator or um what's the other one that I, I was using
0: uh, Renaissance Axe? Oh Renaissance Axe, yeah. Very good. Are you reading my mind? Uh no, I'm I'm playing around in waves a lot these days. So. Huh. <laughs>
1: That is a great plugin, man, that R-Vox our, our too. That's another one that uh, I don't know if you've used that much, but that that whole Renaissance um, series from Waves is outstanding. I know it's old, man, but they are great plugins. You know, and even the the Renaissance EQ, I find myself going to that. It's only six bands, but it's pretty um, it's pretty musical sounding. And the fact that you can separate the right and left EQs, I find very, very useful.
0: You know, I haven't played with the stereo EQ effect in those. And do you notice that it makes a big improvement on like a large scale PA that, that you get like more separation or some more definition from it? Or what do you, what do you experience in that realm?
1: So when I'm separating left and right EQ, it's usually on guitars. Um, the problem that I run into mixing large rooms is you want everybody to hear everything. So you can't, pan your guitars hard left and hard right and get that giant stereo sound so that's been kind of a constant tinker for me is trying to figure out the best way to get that stereo separation but still have both guitars going through both sides of pa and so um the renaissance eq or any stereo eq that you can separate left from right i find terribly useful for that kind of thing because you can keep you know pretty good relative phase between uh when you mono some them if you're spreading them out and just boosting and cutting uh the same frequencies on the left and right you know on on a single guitar source you know if I if I pan them hard left hard right and then uh you know cut whatever 600 on the left channel and boost 600 on the right channel you know you you end up with relatively the same game and not much Penalty in phase when you mono some them down front fills or balcony feeds or any of that kind of stuff.
0: That leads me to another question, which is when you're mixing a band like Parkway Drive, uh, which is, you know, big drop tuning and you've got all this low energy in a big room, how are you maintaining separation so that your mix still sounds clean but has all the energy? Are you doing it with subtle panning or, you know, minor EQ adjustments? And I, I know I'm making you like dig into ancient memory banks, so sorry about that. But uh, it's a selfish question because I run into that with Stitched Up Heart. Their their tuning is so low, and there's two guitarists on stage. We usually have another guitar backing track just to beef things up, and then the bass uh, guitar is in that same range, and then they've got synths and drops and everything like that. I find that getting so cluttered, so I always try to steal (laughs) some ideas And so I was wondering how you approach things like that with like Parkway Drive and the other, you know, really heavy low tune bands that you've worked with.
1: Um, I can't speak to Parkway Drive. Uh, I, I have never mixed front of house for Parkway Drive. They're the only band that I've ever toured doing monitors for. They have an outstanding, like seriously, one of my favorite mixers in the world, uh, front of house mixer, my buddy George mixes them and he just, I mean, honestly, I don't know that there's anybody better in the heavy business. You should really try and get him on the podcast, man. He knows what he's talking about.
0: I would love to, and I'm going to fire my researcher, which is me, uh, <laughs>
1: because I uh,
0: Parkway is on my resume. But yeah, there,
1: that's again the only band I've ever toured running monitors for, man. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed running monitors for them. That's uh, a an, a killer group of dudes. I absolutely love those guys. Um, but um to address your question, um, I, I've I've mixed a lot of low-tune bands, you know. I actually I really enjoy that. Uh, you know, Amir tuned in A, I think. Uh, I mixed After the Burial, those guys tuned in F, you know, they play eight strings and <clears throat> you know, i had bass going the whole time as well. And uh You know, tactics are different for every artist, but in general, with those bands, I I ended up just kind of like cutting the lows out of the guitars up higher than I normally would. You know, where normally I would be looking at a high pass filter for a heavy band, you know, at around 100 or so. 80 to 100 or something. With some of those lower tuned bands, man, I would roll that up to 160 or something and give the bass guitar that room to breathe because I know it sounds counterintuitive, but those guitars being distorted with with all that upper harmonic content, man, they really don't need that fundamental note to be heard if the bass is carrying it. You know, so I tried to give the bass as much room down low and still be able to fit in that kick drum. You know, at 50 hertz or 60 hertz or whatever the good frequency is for for that kick drum um but aside from that i've done some tricky stuff with um with bands before side chaining um multi-band compressors on guitars to bass so when the bass is playing it'll duck down some of the lows in the guitars when the bass stops comes back up and the guitars sound thick and full and you know for intros and stuff like that it works out really well i have however found that you know if you just kind of set that and forget it uh, it can bite you sometimes because you'll start to push the bass up in the mix and then all of a sudden your guitars are ducking way down in that line you start to hear that pumping in the lows and it sounds all weird but if if you're if you're subtle with it or if you kind of keep it in check throughout the show uh i i've found that that can be a pretty useful tactic for dealing with that low tune stuff
0: you ever do any of that side chain ducking with like kick and bass i find that terribly useful uh
1: it's uh it's something that i don't just put it on every mix but certainly man like even when i'm carrying pa and i have this exact same pa tuned by the exact same person every single day it always sounds different in every room you know so there there's always a compressor a multi-band compressor sitting on my bass guitar that side chained to the kick that's just ready to go in case i need it i'll engage it um and yeah i i find that terribly useful to you know just duck down that 80 90 hertz and below fast attack fast release just to let that transmit from the kick punch through you know
0: yeah i'm excited to be able to try and do that with the d-live um it, I wanted to try to do it with the M32, and I probably could have, but I was using the side chain for something else, and I don't remember what it was. So I've been asking people, and it sounds like that's a fun thing to do, and I have to give it a try. Uh, you mentioned carrying PA. So like, let's take Rise against, for example. Uh, what PA are you guys carrying? Uh, what were you carrying on the last tour? And uh, yeah, let's go from there.
1: Um last tour that I did with Rise, I carried uh Claire PA. It was uh just uh subs and front fills on that run. Um I wanted to carry supplemental subs and front fills, and we were using house PAs on that tour. Um and the Claire stuff is great. Uh I honestly haven't had a lot of uh a lot of shows mixing on their full PA, but uh, I've heard some outstanding shows on that PA. Um, that said my PA of choice is L Acoustics, man. I love the K stuff. Um, but honestly, pretty much all the modern line arrays are outstanding PAs, man. Like, you know, anybody who, uh, mixes on a lot of this stuff will tell you it's all great, you know, it's just season to taste kind of things. You know, well, the DB, it sounds a little brighter or, you know, whatever. I think the only modern PA that actually sounds drastically different is the Meyer stuff. Um, for whatever reason, it's not that it sounds bad, but it just sounds different from every other PA out there, you know. It's like I could have similar shows between a DMB and an L Acoustics rig, uh, and then run into a Meyer rig and I've got to retune everything, you know. Mid-range, especially just sounds quite different, more pronounced, maybe.
0: Um, but, uh, yeah,
1: does that answer your question? L acoustic is my PA choice. I love that stuff.
0: K one or K two. Do you have a preference?
1: Um, it depends on the setting. Uh, if I'm doing, you know, outdoor stuff that it needs to throw for a mile and a half, it's going to be K one, you know, uh, normally when I'm doing, uh, like arena runs, man, I'll carry K two just because it's more than enough to fill most places especially if you're carrying side hangs you know um and it's also it's a, a little bit less tax in the truck for you know anything else that i or someone else needs to bring on the tour you know truck space is always at a premium so you know those k1 are big big heavy boxes and getting that that k2 in there you know your stage manager or whoever is in charge of your truck pack you know, they'll, they'll like you a little more for it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So will the stagehands, uh, especially if you have a ramp that you're dealing with, I helped out with a, uh, a a weekend festival and there, it was a a K one rig in a 53 foot, you know, semi and it was outdoors. So everything went ramp and trying to push those stacks of K ones up a ramp was not very fun. And then thankfully we scrounged up a forklift from, you know, some other, uh, part of the show and they, helped lift the stacks into there. But yeah, those K-1s are monsters.
1: Yeah, they're not fun to push, man. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> Cross grass and all that fun stuff. But I would give anything to be in that scenario again right now. Like it's been, you know, oh, such a drought for us. But enough woe is me. So <laughs> I'd like to learn a little bit about the role that you play in the production aspect. So like when you're about ready to go out on tour with A data Remember or Rise Against or some of the more recent bands you that you work with, you're mixing in front of a house, but are you also dictating all of the like uh, audio production aspects, like making microphone choices, making the PA choices, or is it sort of a, a team effort between like the artist management or the music production side of things? How does that work for you typically?
1: Um, In my experience, uh, I pretty much have final say on, you know, the nuts and bolts of what what we what we get audio wise microphones obviously that's something that you know i work with my monitor engineer whoever's on the other side of the snake you know make sure that i'm not making any choices that are going to make their lives hell and vice versa um but uh you know in terms of pa and stuff most of the time it's kind of a what do you want you know to me they'll ask what do you want and i'll tell them what i want and then uh you know the production manager and the tour manager or some combination of the two will uh you know send send out for bids from vendors who carry that pa i have been in the situation in the past where um just for budgetary reasons um i had to get you know a a pa that was you know i i asked for Acoustics and i got dmb which is perfectly fine perfectly fine that's a fantastic pa you know, but that's all because uh, it would have been so much cheaper to rent the audio from the same place that we were getting video. And so that type of thing, man, it's a team, everyone's working together. So I'm I'm fine with that kind of thing. Um, normally, unless there's a huge uh, budget problem, I don't hear much from management about that type of thing. You know, they good managers, they know, you know, to to let let the guys handle their roles. You know, they don't want to micromanage people. Um, that may be different in in other worlds. You know, I know pop world people get a little bit more involved from the management side. But uh, yeah, in my experience, man, it's usually it's down to me and whoever else is on the audio team to kind of make those decisions.
0: Do you have a uh, preferred go to vocal mic that you? out with like so if you're starting uh you know a tour and, and you're working with somebody do you what do you reach for first in the, the microphone drawer for your for your lead vocal? Um SM 58
1: <laughs> honestly the, the answer to that what I reach for first is always an SM fifty eight just because I know exactly what it sounds like. I know exactly what kind of feedback rejection I'm gonna get. You know what I mean? It's just like that's the microphone that everyone knows. Um is that the microphone that I use most of the time? No. Uh, but that is definitely the first microphone I would reach for for an unknown singer. You know what I mean? Um, that said, with Jeremy from a data remember, we have used the Heil uh PR35 capsules, I think, for quite some time. And then just recently, um, I got uh in touch with Connor from Telefunken and he sent us out some M80s and uh you know i've used m80s on snare drum forever that's my favorite snare mic um but i know they're a vocal mic but i've just never used it on a vocal so he sent those out to us and uh, i I put them on jeremy's mic and the adam my monitor engineer with uh, a day to remember and i were both just like whoa this is you know different we've been listening to him on the same mic but just so Full and still clear in the top end and stuff. We both really loved that microphone on him. Um, and we ended up putting it on the backing vocals in there too. Uh, Kevin and Neil, the two guitar players, both sing backing vocals, and we have the M80s on those guys as well. They sound great. With Rise Against, um Charlie Bybee, who I think you just had on the show, uh, sits on the other end of the Snake Rummy in that camp. And we use um Sennheiser uh md i think 431s they're the 431s um and that was a decision that was made before i was ever there you know i I walked into that and i absolutely love those microphones i've tried them on other artists since and uh they've performed great for you know about 60 to 70 percent of them some people they're just not the right microphones for but they're outstanding microphones man i love those things
0: yeah the Sennheiser stuff. I'm a sure guy at heart. Like I, I like you. I reach for a 58 first, and then unless somebody really has a preference, or you know, like the SE Electrics, uh, the new V7 capsules, they sound good for most guys. But the Sennheisers just consistently sound to me more warm or like more natural. Hmm. I can't really put my finger on it. Uh, even like using like an 835, which is like a $69 mic, yes. it, it sounds outstanding. I, I don't get it.
1: They do sound really good. Um, and you know, the the interesting thing about that is like, you know, I, I've mixed a lot of 835s and 935s like everybody else, you know, and I agree. I think those are pretty natural sounding microphones. The 431 is more to me like a, a, a hyper, I don't know, It's it's got a lot of that upper end that's kind of uh, enunciated a little bit more. Um, that top end that, you know, six, seven, eight K is nice and crisp, but not bitey. You know, um, it's not a natural sounding vocal mic, but it just sounds great. It's clear, crisp, you know, exactly what you want out of a lead vocal right in your face.
0: Yeah. And it, it doesn't ever get shrill to me despite having like that, that presence to it. So that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, let's jump to the back side of the stage or go upstage, I guess. And, uh, with your drums, what are, what are some of your go-to drum mics that you like for like kick? And I know you mentioned the M80 on the snare, but like, what are your kick and Tom mics of preference?
1: I am a constant tinkerer. Uh, so basic setup, man, the, the, again, like the first thing I'm going to reach for first thing I'm going to reach for is, uh, 91 D6. D six is probably my favorite drum microphone of all time. I love that thing. in fact, when I used to mix a mirror, I did <laughs> I did D six is on all the toms and on the kick drum I mean he played a three tom kit and they were just tuned as low as they could possibly go. so it worked out really well with me and that sounded so huge. It was so cool. Um, I know it's an absolutely ridiculous thing to do. I know this, but it was still fun <laughs> um. But uh, yeah, again, man, I'm constantly tinkering with things. Like for instance, with um, a day to remember, we about, oh man, it would have been two years, three years ago now, we started uh, experimenting with internal miking on the toms. And uh, the first mics we used there were Sennheiser 906s and those sounded okay uh we modified these mounts a little bit um the internal mics always get this like i don't know how to describe it it's like a tongue 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 you know like a real metallic kind of sound to them and uh so we we made some modifications to the mount and basically we wrapped foam around the microphone and it completely changes everything about the way that the microphone responds but it works you know so basically you know my uneducated uh you know explanation of this is that it kind of blocks the reflections out because you're only getting sound into the top of the mic you know you know the front facing end of the capsule and everything else is muffled so all that cardioid pattern around the sides and stuff is all getting like an altered version of the actual tone which is a lot more muffled and that seemed to help that a lot uh, and then uh, just in further exploration with this internal miking thing we switched over to audix d2 and d4 combos for d2 on the uh rack and d4s in both of the floor toms and man that has been just a stellar combination between that microphone and our little foam uh encapsulation condom thing whatever you want to call it uh that has been great for the times we really really love those in in that camp um with rise against um charlie loves those telefunken clip-on mics forget what the model number is a SH81s or something maybe um but uh those things sound phenomenal and of course when I came in I changed them away and broke his heart and and now we're going to go back to the phones because they sound better um but yeah Tom's man I'm always trying different microphones trying to find the right thing because I struggle to get Tom's big and present but not overwhelming and so, I'm constantly trying to tweak my signal chain to, you know, find the right combination, what works best. So, I've tried, you know, everything out there, man, The all the sure stuff, you know, the DPA stuff, I've tried on there at Sennheiser's. And it's just really, I, I, I find something that works and I use that until it doesn't work anymore, <laughs> you know. m um, 80s is pretty much always on the snare. I love those microphones, although I did try something interesting recently. I used a um, Audio-Technica, is it the 2500, the dual element microphone? I used that on the snare, uh, on the snare top, and had pretty good results with it, actually, man. I had this crazy idea about... Um using one element, you know, since they're perfectly in phase, it's a dual element, like they're perfectly in phase. <clears throat> using one element to compress real hard and get that kind of pop over exaggerated, transient, and let the other microphone take care of kind of the top end, you know, stick attack thing. So they're uh so when I boost that top end in the snare, I'm not boosting that into a compressor and then introducing the chance feedback and all those weird artifacts that you get with high end. Um, and it, that idea kind of worked the way that I imagined it to work. Uh, but I ended up backing off of it and just using it more as um, as you would just any two microphones on a top snare and just kind of EQ them to taste and then bust them together and it sounded cool. I'll probably go back to the M80 though. <laughs> I just love that microphone.
0: Yeah. Uh, you actually came up in one of the roundtables. Brian Campbell was talking about your methodology for wrapping foam around the microphones and and, uh, how innovative it was. And he's like, it was the craziest looking thing, but it works. It was so, it works so well. So yeah, Brian is
1: actually the one who I knew he was doing internal mics with, um, I think it was of mice and men at the time. And, uh, so when we tried to, we were having all kinds of problems with, um, my drummer in A Day to Remember just beats the hell out of a cymbal sometimes. And, you know, that opens up the gates and stuff. And so I knew Brian was using the internal mics, and I got in touch with him. He's the guy who turned me on to the May
0: uh, Tom mounts.
1: Those things are awesome, man. They're great.
0: I have to chuckle a little bit to myself because you say, you've say you said Tinker quite a bit, and my nickname in the band is Tinkerbeard uh because i can't stop tinkering with stuff and <laughs> as you can see on camera i've got a this hideous huge beard and so uh yeah the the band named me Tinkerbeard because i'll will be re- rehearsing and they'll be like it's perfect don't change anything and then overnight i'm like you know if i did these two other things we could probably make it a little okay. bit better <laughs> and
1: so, well i think a lot of us are that way man you know it's there's something about you know, what attracts people to being music engineers, you know, it's that creative side meeting the technical side, you know, that really, I think, lends itself to that kind of mindset of just, I want to explore more and find more and, you know, use all this cool stuff to make something new or, you know, I think there's something inherent there in the type of people that this field attracts.
0: Yeah, it's that or insanity, because I I keep doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. And I think that's the classic definition of insanity. (laughs) I find myself doing that from time to time. We're all guilty, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. We're coming up on an hour here, and I like to keep these right around that time frame. So I guess my final question for you would be, what have you been doing to sort of stay busy during this downtime? Are you able to do any sort of in-the-box mixing, or are you just doing other non-sound related things what, what are you doing to sort of keep your sanity
1: uh yeah i've been mixing um early on in the COVID thing i kind of saw what was coming you know I, I knew when i started seeing uh you know gigs get postponed and stuff in like february uh when i was out i was out in the san francisco bay area and uh there were some you know early signs of events going away and so right then i was like all right well i i'm i'm constantly recording and mixing and just finding multi-tracks online to mix and try things out on and that type of thing kind of what we were talking about tinkering um but uh so i was like you know hey i'm gonna put it out there if any of you guys want your music mixed you know i'm happy to do it and I've, i've actually had some really great bands get in touch with me to mix a song or you know there's like an ep that i've been doing and then there's another artist who's got you know uh a few things that he needs fixed up from you know years back and so i've had some paying jobs doing mixing still which i'm so so thankful for you know because that's that's all i'm really good for (laughs) you know um but uh yeah i've had some some luck there but i've also been writing again i picked up my guitar and wrote you know some songs and obviously mixed those and remixed those and then re-remixed those <laughs> um but yeah man i've been i've been trying to keep myself uh busy with the craft you know not just taking the downtime to play video games and stuff like you know i want to be sometimes <laughs> but um yeah, just trying to trying to keep my head in the game, you know, because it's going to be honestly when this is over, it's going to be go 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 and I don't want to be the guy who goes back to the gig and forgot what he's doing, <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah, it's I totally understand. Are you when you're doing that mixing, are you doing it obviously inside of the box and are you a Pro Tools guy, a Logic guy, a little bit of everything?
1: Uh yeah, in the box. Um I've actually recently switched from Pro Tools over to Studio One. And I get so much hell for using Studio One for whatever reason, man. I know it's a Personas product, and people have, you know, whatever opinions about personas, but uh, I am absolutely in love with that dog. It's like uh it does everything that I want it to do, you know, everything that I'm like, man, I wish I could just XYZ and Lo and behold, there's a way to do it, you know, got some really useful features in there and things that I haven't found in other DAWs. uh, And I just find it very, very fast, intuitive, like I work almost as fast with, you know, a year or maybe two years tops on Studio One as I had with whatever, you know, nearly 20 years on Pro Tools, you know, you get to know a program, you're very fast on it. And it's like moving over to Studio One, I was fast, you know, easy.
0: Do you think you might find yourself using that in a live scenario to capture multi-tracks when you go back on tour? Or is it something that you would just do sort of like in the, in the quote unquote studio?
1: Um, No, I've actually used it for that. Yeah. I I used it. um, 2019 I did a tour with, uh, Rise Against, they were doing like a, an acoustic tour with a string section and stuff. It was a really cool thing for me. You know, I don't to mix stuff like that. So it was really neat. Um, but my Pro Tools rig bit the dust the very first show. And I'm like, screw this. I know Studio One works, hooked it up, rock solid the rest of the time. um And they actually just released an update with uh, a live performance. Um, section added on to it where like you can take stems from your songs and just create it. I'm not gonna do it any justice explaining it so I won't even try but it's basically it's a it's a purpose built live performance engine in the DAW that like communicates with your sessions and stuff. It's really, really cool, really innovative.
0: I will definitely check that out and I will encourage other people to do the same because uh you've got me intrigued. It sounds pretty fascinating.
1: It's really cool, man. I can't say enough good about it.
0: Well, that uh, aside from all the great stories and information, that was probably worth the price of admission. So thanks for sharing that. <laughs> all right, sir, we are right at an hour right now. So let's go ahead and wrap this one up. And I just want to say thanks for taking the time to uh, join me and, and share your experiences and give us a little bit of insight into how you got started and how you mix and how you work with bands like Rise Against and the Data Remember. That's really It's so awesome that you're willing to do that. And I know people definitely appreciate it. So thank you for being on the show today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, man. I appreciate you having me.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, stay safe. And uh, I hope I will see you out on the road before too long. And until then, yeah, we'll keep uh, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. All
1: right, man. Hopefully we cross paths on the road. That's the big point. On the road. (laughs)
0: And that's a wrap on this episode of Mixmasters. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please be sure to subscribe and then tell a friend. Or maybe leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd certainly appreciate it. I produce Mixmasters on the Allen & Heath DLive system with Shure microphones and a little help from Apple's Logic Pro X and some Waves Soundgrid plugins. One more round of thanks to Merritt Goodwin for the music, and until next time, stay safe and healthy, and thanks again for listening.